Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, recent media coverage of Puerto Rico has focused on the impact of earthquakes on communities that have already been through displacement and blackouts and shortages. But elite media seem keen to keep it a Mother Nature story. The New York Times keeps asking why Puerto Rico can't catch a break. And government corruption is listed alongside hurricanes as things that sort of happen to the U.S. territory. But Puerto Rico's debt crisis is a human story, too, and cause as well as impact. And dry business page stories pondering why a ballyhooed plan to address the island's bankruptcy has been rejected are so far a missed opportunity to talk about Puerto Rico as a living lesson about climate disaster capitalism, the failure and cruelty of austerity, and the need for new ways forward. We'll talk about that with Julio Lopez Verona, co-director of Community Dignity Campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. It is not lost on some that, all of a sudden, paid sick leave is obviously socially important, understaffed hospitals are an outrage, and really, shouldn't the government be paying for this? I mean, it's community health we're talking about. And all it took was a little pandemic, an outbreak that, as it just happens, doesn't confine itself to low-income or non-white people. The New York Times' Farhad Manju tried wistfully to imagine U.S. companies and politicians taking seriously the coronavirus lesson of the need for a real social safety net and worker protections. Journalists could also themselves keep focus on enduring fissures that a public health crisis throws into relief. For example, as more schools move their classes online, we could talk about the minimally 12 million disproportionately African-American and Latinx students who don't have Internet access at home. To the extent that elite media acknowledge a digital divide anymore, they generally foreground differences between urban and rural access to broadband. But as work by Free Press and others has shown, rural deployment, while important, is still not as significant as the adoption gap, due primarily to cost, not access, for low-income people and people of color. FCC Commissioners Jessica Rosenworcel and Jeffrey Starks are calling on the agency to step up in the COVID-19 crisis by lending hotspots to schools and libraries and setting up mobile hotspots in low-income neighborhoods, for instance. As elite media go on about how we all should, nay must, telework, teleschool, telehealth, and so on, we can ask that they try and hold on to what they're now learning about who can't do that and why. If you'd pictured how Donald Trump would handle something like the COVID-19 crisis, you probably pictured something like what he's doing. Also living down to expectations, Beltway reporters who continue to present Trump's dangerously nonsensical rants as basically normal, nothing-to-see-here events. 
In his newsletter Press Run, critic Eric Bollert called Trump's March 6th briefing at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in which Trump lied that anyone who wanted to could get tested for the virus, called the governor of Washington a snake, and alleged he had a natural ability for science, a declaration of incompetence and delusion on a grand scale. And Bullard marveled that the New York Times would whitewash that into a respectful piece headlined, It Will End, Trump Urges Nation to Avoid Panicking. The Associated Press wondered, quote, whom to believe on the coronavirus threat, the president saying one thing or the public health official standing beside him and saying something a little different, close quote. While NPR suggested that Trump's breezy approach, in which he relies on his gut for information, was, quote, colliding with a public health emergency, close quote. That's one way to put it. Neil DeMoss, writing for FAIR.org, found elite reporters still studiously avoiding discussion of the emperor's clothes after Trump's March 11th outing, in which he called COVID-19 a foreign virus and sort of, but not really, banned travel from Europe, along with claiming he'd got insurers to waive co-payments for treatment, which isn't true, and saying he's making antiviral therapies available in record time though antivirals aren't actually available yet. Reading the Washington Post on that, you'd get a story leading, quote, a besieged President Trump, who was slow to treat the coronavirus as a serious threat as it spread across the United States, announced a drastic emergency measure Wednesday night designed to save American lives from the pandemic, close quote. CNN let you know that Trump's speech was met with fierce pushback, not from people on earth, but from critics like Joe Biden. Giving officials words weight simply because they're officials, DeMoss notes, harms us not just by lending them undue weight and casting any dissent as mere political disagreement, but also by sucking up the space that could be given to people who know what they're talking about. And finally, when the University of California at Santa Cruz fired 54 teaching assistants engaged in a wildcat strike for cost-of-living adjustments to their wages, the Washington Post report chose to lead with a quote from an executive vice chancellor about how disappointing it was to them to have to take such a drastic step. But they cannot ultimately retain those who will not fulfill their responsibilities. Rather than a quote from a grad student organizer noting that, quote, people are living in their cars. They don't make enough money to buy food, close quote. That prioritization may explain why you aren't hearing very much overall about this strike, not officially sanctioned by the union, the UAW, but now in its fifth week and spread from UC Santa Cruz to at least four other campuses with supportive demonstrations throughout the state system. It's about housing costs and an exploitative graduate teaching model that treats people as students when it wants to and employees when it wants to. And as the L.A. Times' Michael Hiltzik reported in one of very few dot-connecting pieces, it's an unfortunate example of a public university systematically bled of financial support from the state behaving less and less like an educational institution and more like a business. Sounds newsworthy to me, anyway. 
You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Corporate media devoted some sympathetic attention to Puerto Rico in the wake of earthquakes and aftershocks that further traumatized a population and infrastructure not recovered from 2017 hurricanes Irma and Maria. Less and less humanistic attention is going to other central factors of Puerto Rico's crisis. Last month, Governor Wanda Vasquez rejected the bankruptcy deal put forward by what's called the Fiscal Oversight and Management Board, or FOMB, that's been put in charge of Puerto Rico's finances and is negotiating with bondholders over its debt. Critical news coverage accuses Donald Trump of bungling support for Puerto Rico or points to corruption in the island's leadership. But neither does anything to illuminate a new way forward that doesn't reproduce past mistakes and injustices. That doesn't mean Puerto Ricans on the island and in the diaspora aren't working on creating that new way. Here to talk with us about that is Julio Lopez Verona. He's co-director of Community Dignity Campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. Welcome back to Counterspin, Julio Lopez Verona. Thank you for having me. So I've seen a number of journalists saying Trump's bungling coronavirus just like he bungled Puerto Rico. It's almost a punchline, and it certainly sounds like it's all in the past. But worst of all for me, it shoves things into an old narrative, the clamoring needy people and the insufficiently benevolent overseer. More than 50 organizations representing various sectors of Puerto Rican society wrote an open letter calling for the debt restructuring deal to be rejected, as indeed it was. Let's just start with what was so wrong with the plan that that Fiscal Oversight Board put forward. I think what's been wrong with the plans that the Oversight Board has been negotiating for the last two years has been the fact that As we have said and economists have said, Puerto Rico needs about 80 or 90 percent of cuts to be able to have a decent recovery. Those cuts in many cases have been only 30, 40 percent. And in many cases, those cuts are pushed so that hedge funds and other uh, organizations are able to get uh, more money. And while this happens, what we see is a, a continuous pattern of austerity, budget cuts and a ton of measures that are being taken by the government of Puerto Rico to be able to make those payments. Here's that we're talking today because two days ago, Puerto Rico defaulted on one of the first loans it actually negotiated about two years ago. So what we're seeing is that those agreements that the FOMB is negotiating are not working. Puerto Rico can't pay them. And what is resulting is in a Puerto Rico that has no infrastructure, is not able to recover. Right now, we're in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic where we have 11 cases of coronavirus that are supposedly around. We know it's more, but we also know that the government of Puerto Rico has no way to test them. They're sending the tests outside. So we're in a situation where people are still living in in tents in the southern part of the island, where our electrical system is completely I would say, you know, on the verge of of collapse, where our hospitals have been, in many cases, under 
supported. Our Vieques has no hospital, for example, and we are once again in the middle of another possible disaster, and we don't have the capacity to move forward. You really wonder how you can imagine you can austerity a people into recovery, you know, how that is even imagined that it will work. Well, you know, people think about debt as as a moral issue. You you took it, you have to give it back. The story of Puerto Rico's debt is so much more complicated and the U.S. government role is so much deeper. I mean, we have to talk if we're talking about how much should be paid back and who it should come from. There's something to be said about the nature of the debt itself, isn't there? Yeah, I think one thing that we have been working on through our Hedge Clipper campaign for the last four years is that this idea that people, when they think about that, they think about something they have to pay. In the case of Puerto Rico, for I don't know how much time, we have never really known how much debt we owe. We have never really been able to audit that debt. The audits that have happened have been under the FOMB, which, you know, raises a bunch of questions. But then we know that there have been debt and emissions that happened in 2012 and 2014 that were riddled with illegality because Puerto Rico is borrowing over its constitutional limits. So the fact that even in this agreement that came out a month ago, the board continues to offer what we understand and what even they understand is illegal that makes no sense. I think what's hard about this is that because people have this idea in their heads that, you know, we live in a capitalist country where if you pay something, you have to, you know, pay it. So for people to actually understand that we need to audit the debt, that we need to understand the debt, and that we shouldn't be paying any debt that was created illegally has been a struggle in itself for us to be able to actually, like, fight back and make the case that Puerto Rico's recovery goes beyond just saying that we need to pay bondholders. Well, you just mentioned it a little bit, this oversight board, the FOMB. It's this powerful group that was not elected, and there are conflicts of interest that ought to raise questions about how they're even at the center of this process. Yeah, the FOMB, or the Fiscal Oversight Management Board, was created as part of the Obama's administration efforts to support Puerto Rico, quote-unquote. They created this law called PROMESA, which means promise in Spanish. And the law was supposed to allow Puerto Rico to enter into bankruptcy because Puerto Rico was not able to enter into bankruptcy through other means because Congress took that away in the in the 70s. And this law created the Fiscal Control Board, or the FOMB, as a way to have a, a structure that would oversee Puerto Rico's finances and balance the finances of Puerto Rico for five years or until the debt was restructured. What we saw was that these people that they put in place were mostly white men. Mm -hmm. About six of them don't even live in Puerto Rico. They are, in many cases, people that were part of the debt issuances. Some of them worked at Santander. Some of them worked in the government. Many of them actually profited or have been profiting. We have one of the brothers of one of the biggest banks in Puerto Rico, Banco Popular, who helped create the debt. Uh, So within the structures that are supposed to balance the budget of Puerto Rico, we have people that are, one, not Puerto Rican or not living in Puerto Rico, two, were part of creating or or made money out of the debt, and three, are people that are completely outside of the scope of what a normal Puerto Rican is. These are white, rich men 
that really don't understand and haven't been in, in Puerto Rico for the last three years to understand what the struggles of ordinary, everyday Puerto Ricans are. I, I wanted to underscore for folks who don't know all this history, and it's a lot to know, Puerto Rico has also been excluded from certain regulatory laws. I just learned from hedge clippers in Puerto Rico, unlike elsewhere in the United States, investment firms can act as advisors to the government in the issue of mm-hmm. bonds while at the same time marketing those same bonds to investors. Just just in Puerto yeah. Rico. <laughs> um, you know, clearly this kind of special legislation has created a situation in which Puerto Rico both has led into particular kinds of problems, but then also doesn't have the same tools to get out of them. Yeah, and I think it goes to show what Puerto Rico has has become and is for the United States. Like Puerto Rico, for the last 122 years after the United States took Puerto Rico from Spain, has been a place where U.S. citizens can come, can play, can have fun. Right now, many of them come and don't have to pay any taxes and can invest. The U.S. has played with Puerto Rico's economy for the last 122 years so that it serves the purposes of the U.S. in in one way or the other. Same thing with the military. So these policies are not new. They're just a reflection of, you know, our colonial status. And they worry us because they have an impact on the 3 million people that still live in Puerto Rico. Taking into account, and this is a part that people don't know, that Puerto Rico has lost 15 percent of its population in the last 15 years. And people are, are just going away because they can't live here. And while that happens, what we're seeing is this hundreds of people, mostly uh, rich people that are coming to the island and buying. So this idea of, of this like 50s, I always think about this, like the Havana, Cuba 50s, <laughs> people coming in and like the backyard of the U.S. is very much what's happening on the island. Like people are living with twenty seven, twenty five an hour while others are coming with millions to invest and take over. Well, we see that dystopian vision. I think when we talked in 2018, the phrase Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans was being sort of Mm -hmm. bandied about. But there are, of course, other visions. Clearly, those organizations and groups on the ground were opposed to this this particular deal that the FOMB put forward that was going to make sure vulture funders get paid back while pensioners take a cut. What are groups calling for? What what do they want to happen? Well, I think the the exciting part of what was happening in Puerto Rico is that people are actually not happy. They are more conscious than ever about our status and our colonial situation. And in many cases, people are scared, and that's made like making them organize. Um, I work very closely with an organization called Construyamos Otro Acuerdo, but we also work with Colectiva Feminista, with a ton of the groups that are doing organizing. And what we've seen is people that are willing to, to fight for their rights. The biggest organizing we are doing right now is around pension holders. Pension holders in the new debt agreement are about to uh, lose about 8.9% of their pensions if they make more than a certain amount of money. And we have been able to organize with pension holders to make the case that this should not be happening. And the interesting part about what's happening is that our Republican government, which is what we have right now in Puerto Rico, like the governor is Republican, the legislature is led by Republicans, is now opposing the debt agreement because in many ways they are seeing that 
you know, they can't win without pension holders, right. but also that they, they should not be giving their power to the legislature, to the FOMB, to make decisions about the people of Puerto Rico. So I think within that, there's been a really interesting movement also to talk about the debt, to talk about cancellation of the debt, and kind of bring those issues together. Mm -hmm. Like, how can we have a better life for pension holders? How can we have a better life for students that now have their tuitions tripled in public ed schools? How can we do all those things while we're paying Wall Street illegal debt? And I think it's an interesting moment that is also in the middle of the political fight we have in the elections that's helping organizations like Hedge Clippers, Construyamos Otro Acuerdo, and others actually make the case that the debt is illegal and shouldn't be paid, and that we should be protecting our older people, our pension holders, and also our younger people, and also everybody that lives on the island, and making sure people have a good life. Well, when we saw those protests that led to Ricardo Rosselló's resignation, there is a certain amount of envy that one feels at that sort of at the spirit, at the organizing, at the energy, you know. Um, and and also we hear about you know kind of mutual aid on the ground, you know, the the autogestion, mm-hmm. the idea of helping one another. And maybe it's scary. Something we're feeling uh, on the mainland as well. It's scary, but you're also kind of seeing new ideas about how systems might work, about different ways to go forward that don't involve giving so much of your power away. Yeah, and it's a tricky thing. I think there is, after Hurricane Maria, we saw a ton of groups that just decided that the state wasn't the place where they wanted to engage. And those organizations like Casa Pueblo and a ton of others have been the ones that have led this autogestion movement that really says, you know, we don't want to work with the state. There are others like me that also understand that we need to work with the state because if we don't change the economic situation of people in Puerto Rico, it's going to be very difficult to just, you know, make sure everybody's doing their own thing. I think there's like this interesting balance between people that are in the mountains that are saying, we're going to create our own thing, we're going to harvest, and how those things are reflected on a broader movement that's saying the state also has to change. Like the ousting of Ricardo Rosselló was that great example. It was people just tired of having to deal with everything by themselves, not being able to rely on the government, and actually asking for a change. And I think the hard part about what we are doing now is like, how do we take that energy? How do we talk to the young people that were unorganized and just decided to go to the streets and actually organize them into saying, are we going to deal with the state? Are we going to assume positions of power? And are we going to figure out, like, how do we improve Puerto Rico beyond, you know, beyond autogestion, which is important, but it's not going to be the solution for everybody. Right. Well, I just want to say one final thing about media coverage. I was reading a New York Times story that was talking about what you've been mentioning, the, the cut to pensioners' benefits, and it said that, Vasquez was considering rejecting the deal because she said retirees should get sweeteners too. And so the way we're talking about not having a cut to your benefits for, for um, you know, senior citizens and pensioners, that's called getting a sweetener. And I, to me, that's just a symbol of how when a story gets moved to the financial section of the newspaper, 
sometimes the humanity just drops out. And I just wonder, in terms of the way reporters talk about not just the debt, but Puerto Rico, I've read so many times, Puerto Rico can't catch a break. You know, the earthquake, and it's like it's natural disasters, and there's that kind of coverage. I wonder what kind of news coverage you would like to see. I think we want to hear more of the stories about how people are suffering and we want to also hear more of the stories of how people are like moving up and right. creating new political structures and fighting back. At the end of the day, like, you know, in the case of the governor, for example, like right now we are moving legislation with the new progressive party, which is the party in power. And they are supporting our efforts to cancel the debt and to protect pension holders. I think within that, the hard part is like, how do we make sure our message is there? How do we make sure that our message is not about like quantifying people because they matter in an election or they matter for bonds? But I also think that we need to deal with the realities of, you know, how do we make sure that the narrative also talks about people in a way that gives them value, even if it's not the way we want it to be. And what we have seen right now, which is the part that I feel is important, is that the FOMB doesn't have friends. The only friends that the FOMB right now has are hedge funds. Both the governor and the legislature, 50 groups, and the diaspora are with people in Puerto Rico, are with pension holders, and are talking about cancel the debt. We would like that message to be more human. We would love that message to be about like how people are moving up and how people's dignity should be at the front of everything. But we will take any message that actually, <laughs> you know, make sure that our people are protected and that we can make sure that Puerto Rico is for Puerto Ricans and not for the rest of the people that want to take over. We've been speaking with Julio Lopez Verona, co-director of Community Dignity Campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. You can find their work, including a brand new report about how the New York State Attorney General could bring transparency and accountability to some of the creditors and speculators on Puerto Rico's public debt at populardemocracy.org. That work can also be found at hedgeclippers.org. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin, Julio Lopez Verona. Thank you for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website. It's FAIR.org. That's also the place to find out about our newsletter extra, our Action Alert Network, and to show support for the program if you're so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.